0: Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein, I'm a travel and entertainment journalist and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list, we'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by one of the most influential photographers of all time, David Loftus. I first got to know David's work through reading Condé Nast Traveller magazine for which he shot numerous breathtaking travel editorials taking him all around the globe. But he's perhaps best known for bringing food to life for millions of people, photographing for the books of the world's most high profile chefs from Gennaro Contaldo, Nathan Outlaw, previous podcast guest Rachel Koo and his longtime collaborator and close friend Jamie Oliver. His work with Jamie alone has resulted in international book sales in excess of 30 million copies. And not only has he now photographed over 150 books and shot portraits of the world's most famous faces, David is also a published author himself. Most recently, his memoir, Diary of a Lone Twin, is an account of love and grief following the untimely death of his identical twin, something which frames a lot of our conversation today. I spoke to David in his beautiful London home last week on the hottest day of the year in a room full of memories from his extensive travels and as well as bringing to life some of the incredible destinations in which he's worked and traveled. This is an episode really for people like me actually who love islands. Every answer you'll notice actually David picks is surrounded by water. We also benefit from David's expertise with some brilliant tips for taking the best photos on our cameras and our phones. So from Paros to the Bahamas, the Lofoten Islands to the Orkneys. Let's get started. David Loftus, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure for me.
0: We are in your home in this incredible room. Um, I want to bring it to life for the listeners. It is absolutely jam-packed with curios and books and memories. Tell me a little bit it's, about where we are.
1: It's. I call it my cabinet of curiosities. Um as you know, Victorians kept these cabinets, which was all their travels and little mementos. And my my one of my great, great uncles was an explorer and he collected bits and bobs and he was an artist. Uh, he did a lot of paintings um, when he was particularly traveling. He was the first person to walk the Hindu Kush wow. um, in Nepal. So he was sending back dispatches to Queen Victoria. So mm. there are various bits of his dispatches around. And then I've added to those collections, things of my own, as I've travelled,
0: yeah,
1: uh, particularly with my work.
0: So basically, travel is in your blood.
1: It is, yeah. I'm a sort of, um, I'm an obsessive beachcomber. I've had to really hold back because of, you know, the the sort of ecological, I don't want to be the one man that, Beachcombs, the world drive. It's bits and bobs, but yeah. um, so I hold back now, and I do try and leave as much on the beach as I can. But it's it's my sort of obsessive compulsive in my life.
0: Yeah, and you're clearly really passionate about the environment. I mean, I've I've seen that through your posts online.
1: I am, and you know, one of the great things with travelling, of course, is you know how you balance how much you travel. Um, I'm currently trying to buy an area of land in Italy where I can plant things so I can give something back. I mean, it's all very well giving to charities and to, you're never quite sure where your money goes to as far as planting trees. And sometimes I do things, I just think, oh my God, I'm going to have to plant a forest for this. But I feel I need to leave something behind that can be untouched. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it is, it's a constant fight in one's moral, you know, in, in your brain as to, Is this travelling worth it? You uh, you know, what are you giving? But of course, a lot of my travel is to do with things like sustainability and um, helping fishing communities around the world and things like that. So a lot of my jobs are about good things. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that that outweighs Uh, the the (laughs) the air miles that I inevitably accrue.
0: Well, I mean, we've got an awful lot to cover with your travel diaries. Just, I mean, you just have to have a scroll through your portfolio of work to know that you've covered so much of the globe. So we're going to go on a journey of the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries, starting right at the very beginning.
1: And it's going to be very hard to actually choose locations. I know. Um, But I'll try. It's always tough. I will try.
0: Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? I think
1: my earliest childhood memory would be um, my father um, was a spy during the war and his brother was captured in North Africa and forced to march all the way uh, around the Med to uh, Europe and he ended up in Austria. Um, my father, um, as one of his missions, arranged him to escape they bombed they bombed they bombed this prisoner of war camp, and uh, all the prisoners escaped um, but my uncle decided to hijack a car it 's a little bit of a long story around why we went there, but uh, he he decided to hijack a car and was escaping alongside of a lake um, came off the road, and ended up in the lake where he was saved by a passing shepherd. <laughs> And it, just,
0: it sounds like something you couldn't make up.
1: I know. And the thing is, as children, we thought this sto- this story was the most fascinating story you could imagine. Certainly the earliest childhood memory was going to stay with the shepherd, no. who we got to know as Opa, which is grandpa. Um, so we went with my Uncle Patrick and my father and families and we used to stay. And this was in the Austrian mountains. It was next to a lake called Grundlsee, Mm -hmm. but the the lake he went into was called Toplitzsee. And again, as young children, this was fascinating because it's where the Nazis threw all the gold.
0: Into the lake. The
1: looted gold, and it still remains apparently at the bottom of Toplitzsee.
0: So you're always kind of keeping Um, an eye out for something glistening. Yeah, and it's
1: very mystical and Mm. uh, very beautiful. And I've always liked, I mean, I've always wanted to be around water, so lakes are perfect for me. I love to be in cold water, and I love the Alps out of winter. I mean, everyone obviously goes skiing and stuff, but but alpine areas, I love them in summer. Mm -hmm. I love cold pools of water, and... Um, I love the spring with the wildflowers, and oh, yeah. that to me is utter bliss. Oh, um, I mean, I'm really great. glad that most people go in winter, because it makes it much nicer in the summer.
0: Yeah, it's so true.
1: So say, and those places, um, seemed the most exotic place imaginable, really, to us. Yeah. And, of course, it had this history of my father and my uncle. Absolutely amazing.
0: And a connection that lasted for absolutely, years absolutely, to
1: come. it was wonderful, <laughs> mm.
0: amazing. And I saw on um, your Instagram page an amazing photo of when you were a child, one of your early Christmases. You and you'd been given your camera for the first time. I kind of wondered from that point when you were given that as a gift, you know, were you were you hooked ever since?
1: I was hooked. Yeah, the first photo I ever took was from my sister. And she was riding her bicycle, it was with that camera, and it was soon after Christmas Day. And my father had put in black and white film, because that was how you were supposed to be as a photographer. You shot black and white. Right. Um, And I took the first photo, and I processed the film a couple of days later, and it was blurry. And of course, I'd taken it in the dark, in winter, with not a great camera. And she was riding fast towards me, trying to hit me. So, of course, (laughs) it was blurry, but I was so disappointed that I didn't take another picture for months. No. But then he got me a slightly better camera, but also he started buying me photography annuals, which I still have, really arty ones, mm-hmm. really arty, and almost always in black and white. Yeah. But often also blurry. So ah, right. using slow speeds and they were sort of the antithesis of how you're taught to take photos in a way, and of course these people were seen as artists because they were, you know, taking um abstracts, they were taking multiple exposures, they were um, doing all these amazing things with photography as art. And I realised actually, you can get just as much from a blurry shot as you can from a, you know, a a straight, fully in focus photo. Um, I think I was scared of the technical, and it's one of the things that I've always um done as a professional whenever I've done lectures and things, I try and uh, demystify really and take away my technical knowledge of photography is appalling. Terrible. Really, really. Yeah. People always ask me what lenses I have and I use one. And I can often I'm slightly numerically dyslexic, but I can often not remember the name of that lens, the number of the lens.
0: So it's a total natural gutter. So instinct, it is it is talent. yeah,
1: and that was the one thing that um my father really taught me and that was with that first little camera but it was really getting an Olympus trip which was the the little sort of point and shoot but it had just a few more options you know you could go from landscape to portrait and Mm -hmm. things like that and that allowed me a little more freedom and ever since then I've shot manually so nothing is automatic. So the simpler, the better for me, really.
0: So interesting. And interesting that the annuals and seeing that work kind of gave you the confidence to, you know, not overthink Absolutely. what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's funny now, of course, when you buy a phone, it's all about apps, which sort of make things look as though they're 35 mil or, yeah, you know, it's all about adding scratches to your videos or it's adding, you know, um, little blurs here or there or you know, I saw recently there's you know, there's this thing called tail fins where you add a flash of exposed light to one side yeah, and that's all that. on a phone. Yeah. So so it's interesting, all those lovely things.
0: They're kind of coming back around and yeah. a bit in a in a strange way.
1: I mean I have very little of my photography on the wall. Uh, I was gonna walls. ask you. I that, have mostly yes. paintings. Right, yeah. And I I get a lot more personally from paintings than I do from photography and I'm not that interested in photography per se Mm -hmm. except as a way of creating pretty images really. Um, I'm not very good at gritty and gutsy. I I like to take pretty photos basically.
0: Of course there's a big difference between you know being given your camera and experimenting and then becoming one of the world's most successful photographers. So was there a a defining moment, a defining image, or like a big break that tipped the scale and made, made you know, it was the start of big things. I think
1: I can remember the first photo I took where my father turned around and said, that's actually a great photo. Mm-hmm. Um, and he definitely pushed me. He was very worried that I was a twin for, for the first 25 years of my life. And my, my identical twin died when we were 25. My mm-hmm. father was very worried Um, Before that, that I didn't have as many hobbies as he had. Now that was partly because he was slightly elder and slightly bossier, but it was also because he was a very talented artist. Right. And I always felt not as good, not as talented. And he anything he turned to, he would do really well. Mm -hmm. So my father was the one that pushed the photography. And good thing that he it was, it. it was. But it was actually graphic design I was studying at Chelsea. Yeah. And um, I was doing I didn't like my tutors (laughs) and they were very they were quite mean to me. And at one point they suggested I my twin was at Kingston and I was at uh, Chelsea. And one of my tutors suggested I moved to Kingston to be with my twin. And I was explaining that I was trying to forge a career on my own and apart from my twin. And um, she turned around to me and she said, darling, you remind me very much of my daughter. She very much wanted to be something she never would be, which, as a student, obviously was what devastating. A, what a thing for a teacher
0: to say! I know.
1: But luckily, it was sort of red rag to a bull in a way for me, and I ended up hiding in the dark room, processing my own shots, because it meant they couldn't find me. <laughs> and it was very hu- obviously very easy to hide in a dark room. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. So I started taking photos and processing them myself, um, and. I ran off to see one of my uncles in Paris for a few weeks and took some black-and-white photographs on the subway. Um, And I brought them back, and there was a rather lovely old photography tutor called Joe Gross, and he had worked with some of the great photographers in Paris. And he said uh, very sweetly, he said, you know what, one day I think you might be the next Cartier-Bresson. Now, I know that's mad, utterly mad to hear that and I sat there thinking the guy's bonkers but of course it did sow that seed of maybe I am doing something that I exactly can do well with and can enjoy and be good at on my own and possibly be better than my twin
0: (laughs) so moving on to chapter two that is the first place that you fell in love with where would that be?
1: I think the first place I fell in love with, I mean, I'd love to say it was Greece, but I think Greece has been part of my life for almost all of my life. Um, But actually, the first place I fell in love with was probably the Orkneys. Um, And it was again, one of those early travels for my parents, my mother's Mm -hmm. grandmother had come from the Orkneys. And, the, and just
0: for my listeners who are international, can you explain kind so of the where Orkans they are? So the
1: Orkneys are closer, they're part of the UK, yeah. part of Scotland, but they are nearer to Copenhagen than they are to London. They're so far north, aren't they're they? They're so far north. So they're the last stop, the Shetlands are the last stop, and then you get into Scandinavia. So they're out in the very top of the North Sea. But what's wonderful is, um, so my, my my great-grandmother on my mother's side was Orcadian, and they're quite proud people they're very celtic. They are nearer to being Vikings than they are you know to sort of anglo saxon Brits so fiery tempers and very artistic there was definitely um it's it's quite, it's an extraordinary place and yeah and the English tend not to go there and I don't understand why because um i've sin- since been with one of my best friends, and we took a little plane and flew between all the little islands. And they're some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. The beaches are extraordinary. White sand. White sand, cold sea, but very clear. As little children, what we discovered was, um, and our father explained this to us, that it was part of the Gulf Stream. So you used to get the most amazing tropical shells, and we'd spend a lot of time beachcombing for cowries. And it's the only place in the UK I've ever found cowries. But also as children fascinating things like the ring of brogar which is incredible i think it's neolithic uh, ring of stones i mean it's like stonehenge is on every corner in the orkneys Mm. Um, and then you get amazing sort of viking settlements Mm. i remember there was a settlement called scarabray i mean it's wonderfully romantic yeah and you know birds of prey and you know sheep on the beach eating seaweed and There's amazing rock formations. There's this one which we went to called the Old Man of Hoy, which is this extraordinary pinnacle of rock that just sort of blasts out of the sea. I think people climb it. I guess people
0: just don't go up there, maybe because it's harder to reach and also the weather is probably quite unpredictable. But if you nail it, I mean it's like being in the Caribbean, from what I understand. Yeah, I
1: mean, my childhood memory was of constant sunshine. But also, I was a bit of a closet ornithologist as well. So, you know, you'd see things like puffins and yeah. guillemots. And, um, and, of course, they get whales and dolphins and all sorts. So it's probably the most exotic place in the UK that you can go to. And it doesn't have the sort of... You know, once you get a bit further, the Shetlands, it's all about oil production and things like that, whereas... Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Orkneys, it's all about history and beaches.
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. I was just in Scotland, actually, um, but not that far north. And you're making me want to book another trip back there and go to Orkneys. I mean, you stuff. know
1: what the beaches are like. The beaches are extraordinary. Yeah. But it is about the weather.
0: Yeah. I was
1: recently in Lofoten um, in oh, northern really? Norway. Oh, really? Oh, I'd and, love to go there, wasn't it? And that's was one of amazing. the most extraordinary places I've ever been to. Yeah. Um,
0: the I- islands again. Yeah, yeah. And it's,
1: it's much like, it's like cross between sort of Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. And um, it was 24 hour daylight and 24 hour sunlight. Um, I mean, the weather was a little hit and miss, but it's an extraordinary place. And again, the beaches really reminded me of the Orkneys and the bird life and the, the sea life and the clarity of the ocean. Oh. Um, I was out with Sami fishermen, so Sami are the indigenous Swedish-Norwegian people, and we were out fishing with them in the ocean. And it was just, I mean, it's, A, the sea is like a larder. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. full of fish, mm-hmm. and it gives you a certain hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the beaches are amazing, and the colour of the water is extraordinary. Ugh. And amazing cliffs, you know, going up, and mountains. And, Rugged, beautiful. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I've seen it. I've seen photos of it, and um, Norway as a whole actually is a place that I would love to travel around. I've never yeah. been, and it just looks amazing. airbnb.co.uk forward slash host thank you to airbnb for supporting the travel diaries so going back to these kind of early days of your mm. photography career and early on in both of both of your respective careers you forged a, a very uh, fruitful relationship with jamie oliver the chef mm. mm-hmm. which endures to this day and i know that um You're the godfather to his son, and is he the godfather to you? you, you, He's he's your best man. He's
1: godfather to my daughter, and I'm godfather to his son. He decided to wait to have a son before he asked me to be a godparent. I'm not sure why. Um, But um, he was running out of reprobates to give to (laughs) to his daughter. He has a lot of children, doesn't he? He does have a lot of children. So actually, there are a lot of godparents. (laughs)
0: What what is the secret to your enduring success um, as a collaboration
1: I think, um, I mean, we're both, we're both restless. I, I have a very restless eye and imagination. I, I I'm not very good at staying still. I'm not very good at not creating, and he likes that because his his mind works. It's he's very different from other chefs who do books. With chefs who do books, they tend to write a recipe. You shoot it. Um, you know, that's it. It's yeah. as simple as that. Yeah. With him, it's a it's a process that he goes through. So he'll have ideas, but he won't have recipes. So um, again, a lot of chefs will get food stylists to do their work. He does it on his own. He has a team, but he does it on his own. He cooks, he chops, he you know, he styles.
0: So it's really him behind. <laughs> it's him. really him, yeah. and
1: he's inventing as he goes along. And you have to be able, to, as a photographer, you have to keep up with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but also he's interested in your opinion and he wants to know how you're going to shoot it, what you're going to do, you know, and you're shooting the process all the time as well, so um, so you try not to miss anything.
0: I mean, most of my listeners who are listening, I would assume, have at least one Jamie book on their shelves and yeah, I mean, you've shot are, all the photos that are in yeah,
1: them. Yeah, I've shot 19, I think 19 of his books. Yeah, that's an awful um, lot, I mean, now I think I've shot over 150 books in total, Gosh, of which yeah, insane. 19 are his. Are they He's, all in this house? Uh, they are. They're in my, They're in the garage, though. <laughs> right. Some I'm utterly ashamed of. Some I I'm really proud of. Yeah. So there is a shelf of the ones which I'm really proud of, and then there's a the sort of the shelf of yeah, sh- the shelf, shelf of regret. Of shame. <laughs> there are one or two books that aren't even allowed into the house. Oh,
0: really. Okay, so chapter three is a place where you learn the most about yourself.
1: I guess it would have to be Greece and it would have to be Paros. It's where John and I first went away on our own. I mean, we would we had done trips on our own, uh, but with, you know, with grandmother along. So we'd been to places place like Canada and stuff. But to actually go away on our own after school, you know, um, before we went to, to Ark. John twin. was my twin, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so we went and spent some time in Paros, and we, we'd always loved Greece. We'd wanted to go to Greece for a long time on our own, and we were Grecophiles. You know, we were obsessed with Lawrence Durrell, with Gerald Durrell. We were, we loved poetry. We loved art. We loved everything about Greece. Um, so Greece is our sort of was our spiritual home, and Paros was the happened to be the one of the Cyclades islands, which both of us settled on he was the first I was the first to go to the Cyclades but he was the first to go to Paros
0: so is the Cyclades the one that has Santorini, Santorini, Mykonos, Mykonos, Eos Eos, and Paros
1: yes now I don't uh, Naxos and I mean there's it's a wonderful set of islands. they're quite arid quite mountainous in places They have that traditional whitewashed architecture, Mm. which, I mean, Paros is certainly the prettiest, I believe. And in
0: comparison, though, to Santorini, like, gets, I would imagine, less, far less, it's far less famous.
1: Yes. I mean, Santorini, the first time I went to Santorini, it was amazing because it was, you know, it was a donkey from the port and it was, it was. Chaos, but certainly, no, there were no flights or um, and not and that was, many
0: five star hotels, no, yeah. none actually. <laughs> or honeymooners or Instagrammers, <laughs> no,
1: no. So it was right, Santorini was certainly wonderful at the time.
0: So, what was it that you loved about Paris? Paris,
1: a, it was very arty, which I loved. There were a lot of artists there yeah. ceramicists, antique collectors, there were chefs. It was a place where people settled as opposed to. Went not just on holiday.
0: So it's a, cre- a real place for creatives. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and the first time I went there, I remember I I found John, and he was he was talking to this amazing Greek dancer who he got to know, who ran this lovely little tiny sort of antiques emporium, which sold these amazing, you know, bits and bobs. And, um, and then he took me to a pottery called Iria, which is still up in the mountains of... Greece and we used to bring little bits of pottery home every time Um, so we I just loved it I mean I wrote a book about my twin um, three years ago it came out two years ago called Diary of a Lone Twin and in it I took my children and my wife to Paros for the first time Mm. and went back to all the places that John and I used to spend our time and it was incredibly hard Harder than I imagined, actually. Uh, I found our landlady from when we were uh, teenagers and when we were in our 20s. I found her in Paros. You know, it was an emotional... It was a a very emotional experience. Um, And I was writing the book at the time, and it was hard. But what was extraordinary was how little it had changed. Mm -hmm. And I knew every cove and every turn of the track and every you know every build i mean obviously it had shishi shops which weren't there before it had a few shishi restaurants and bars but but essentially structurally it hadn't changed at all a few villas had popped up or uh but there were no big hotels or mm-hmm. you know it was just the same and the uh, you know, it was amazing. I mean, some of the my twin used to sit and draw the boats in. In there's a boatyard near um, Nosa, which is on the s- southeast of the island. And it's a very pretty bay. I mean, it's probably going to be inundated with Instagrammers now because Justin Bieber was there two weeks ago in Noosa, no, really, um, so, which that is amazing, rather the unfortunate. Effect. Yes, so um, but Nosa is this incredibly picturesque port. And John used to wander up to the boatyard there and sketch the boats or the kaikis, which are the old Greek fishing boats. He used to sketch them in the boatyard and then sell them to yachtsmen who were pulling into the port. He oh. would set up a little stall and sell them and it would allow him to stay another week in oh, Um amazing. And I went back to the boatyard and I took some photographs and made some sketches there. Two things. I hadn't noticed that the place that he used to sit was the Chapel of St. John which was an extraordinary thing. Instance, yeah. Um uh, the, Sorry, the monastery of St John. And the other thing was, there seemed to be the boat that I had the sketches of that John had done 25, no, it must be 30 years ago. Uh, the boat seemed to still be there, <laughs> which yeah. I it was like time had stopped. It was yeah. extraordinary.
0: Amazing how with, uh, I mean, speaking to a lot of my guests, their travel diaries, grief is something that often comes up because destinations somehow like punctuate your life and hold, and also just hold so many Absolutely. memories and so I, I um,
1: mean I had traveled all over Greece from Mount Athos to Crete to everywhere yeah. particularly with work and I had I'd avoided going back to Paros for mm. so long and was um, it
0: cathartic when you went back as well as yes i mean i you know as well as very so. now
1: i would say you know of all the places on earth i I'd love to, you know, have a little home and and, you know, see out my days. It would be <laughs> it would and, be overlooking a bay in Paros.
0: And I don't know if if we mentioned, but your son is called Well,
1: Paros. he named my son Paros, yes. Yeah, I and love that. Extraordinary. Yeah. He looks a bit like a Greek fisherman with a dark beard. He's and... very handsome. <laughs> he is. He is bless him.
0: <laughs> so, chapter four then, your all time favourite destination.
1: I would say it is a particular bay what what i really love when i'm traveling because often i'm working and you know i'm shooting some magnificent things yeah from the epic to the minute eye you know it's um and as i said i have a very hungry eye and imagination so even if i'm resting i'm constantly working i'm i'm framing i'm i'm shooting i'm collecting i'm drawing i'm writing i'm it's just a constant it's a slightly obsessive, you know. Mm-hmm. So if I really want to switch off, it tends to be places which are more intimate, so and where I can find my own little space in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, I've spent quite a lot of time in the Bahamas, and there is a, there's a particular island called Windermere which I've spent a lot of time on, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love. It's attached to a bigger island of Eleuthera. and oh, most yeah. most people know Harbor Island, which is right at the top, which yeah. I have spent time in, and I have friends who live there. But there's this place near Governor's Harbor, which, ironically, is called Twin Bay, mm-hmm. um, and it's these two lovely little white crescent beaches, with the tiniest island on the end of it, and it's surrounded by palm trees, and It is two little bays, which I don't want anyone to go to, (laughs) if I'm completely honest, because the turtles are undisturbed at the moment and will swim right up to you and say hello. Um, You do see the odd shark, so maybe that'll put a few people off. Um, Beautiful stingrays. There's the odd osprey, which again, from my Scottish travels is something that's very close to my heart, which drop in and catch fish on the in the water beside you. I've not seen other people there. But the, we stay in this wonderful little octagonal uh, beach hut, which is full of shells. It's made with driftwood. <clears throat> A friend of mine, Doom McKinney actually built it, and you can rent it. And she built it out of beach uh, driftwood. And come the hurricanes, it's it's the only building that's actually survived. I mean, she's a she's a tough, so it's a robust, robust building. she. I've watched her disappear into the sea and come out with the most enormous crawfish and which are the Bahamian lobsters. It has an outdoor shower in the jungle, and you can you can you know walk around with no clothes on happily without anyone ever seeing you. And Mm -hmm. so that is my ideal. It also has the most beautiful library of books, and as you can see in my. I adore books yeah. and I love reading um I don't possess a television i don't you know I don't really that's not my idea of fun. I'll watch a movie or a series sometimes but but I love to read so the idea of being in this little house reading beach sea mm, sounds um, blissful. my beach combing yeah. you know that's my idea of heaven really <clears throat> so if I had to yeah say one's place it's it's Proper Robinson Crusoe, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Gerald Durrell, it's it's all those things that I love. Wow. Um, in a nutshell.
0: Ah, oh, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I mean, I got to know your work initially actually through your travel editorial, um um, through Connect kind of, Nast Traveller and, yeah. uh, and and such. And I wondered, is there a favourite destination that you are sent to on an assignment, like with a brief, like that means the most to you? Wow,
1: means the most to me. Um, I mean, I have, I'm have. i obviously very lucky that I am sent to some extraordinary places. Um, often they are places that need a little help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes I'm so excited and I get there and they are terrible. I've been to some terrible places. But... The first trip I did abroad after my twin died, Condé Nast Traveller sent, uh, sent me this beautiful article by Louis de Bernier, who wrote Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Yeah, yeah. And it was about Easter in Greece and it was Easter on Kefalonia um, and Ithaca. And they gave me the brief and just said, right, we want you to go and do Greek Easter. Well, I said, that's amazing. I said, but that's next week. And they said, yes, next week. And so I had no time to prepare, really. But off I flew to Kefalonia and I followed his footsteps. Mm-hmm. And it was very sort of, luckily it said he stayed here or stayed there. But the first day I went up to Ithaca, I decided to start in Ithaca. And Ithaca is this mythical yeah, i always wanted um, to go to Kefalonia is quite funny because it's it, quite strange because a lot of it was destroyed in the 50s in the earthquake. So so, architecture is nothing like Paros. It doesn't have those sort of ancient buildings. It's not. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as romantic as I thought. Yeah. So I kept going because I wasn't being feeling inspired. So I ended up in You're Ithaca, great, which is, is it? stunning. Yeah. Um, and slightly un-Greek in a way. It felt like Scotland in the middle of in the middle of the Aegean. So there I was in Ithaca, and I checked into my lovely little hotel. And I went and sat in my bedroom. And I was exhausted, and slightly unprepared, and was very aware that um, I didn't quite know what to do with myself. And it was only then, as I sat in the corner of my room, that I realised that it was the first time I had been, I was about to spend a night on my own, since I was conceived because this was the first trip i'd taken since um since my twin had died yeah. and i'd always had company so i'd stayed at home i'd looked after my mother i'd, I'd always had company it was going to be the first time i'd stayed alone That's but it was a it was probably the most yeah. extraordinary moment of my travel life knowing that i was suddenly operating as a solo individual as opposed mm-hmm. to a, as an identical twin or yeah. and, you know, really, I had to sort of snap out of it and pull myself together. And it was, it took a long, it took many years to get my mojo going for travelling and travelling alone and, and things like that. But, but it was, um, you know, for Condé Nast Traveller, they didn't realise what they were setting me up for. Yeah. But it was really a make or break moment. Yeah, I was, a very big part of me wanted to just turn around and come home. And I think if I'd done that, I would have probably not had the career I had, because I think that would have really set me back many a year. Whereas I didn't, I hadn't actually read the whole of Louis de Bernier's article at that point. But Mm -hmm. what I realised was when Greek Easter erupts in Kefalonia and places like that, it erupts with fireworks and mayhem. and, And I mean, it is utterly bonkers. Yeah. And um, I mean, people throwing fireworks at me as I was shooting, but actually <laughs> it was it was so chaotic and so beautiful and and mad that, um, you know, it, it got me. It kept my brain, you know, fizzing and, you know, kept me going, really. So that was probably a sort of pivotal moment.
0: Yeah, it sounds mm. like it. Amazing again, how travel um, and being in new environments can yeah shift shift things
1: yeah i mean one of my loves really is leaving london you know in a, on a in the morning or and and ending up somewhere later that day so so, so different. completely different yeah, whether it's yeah. culturally or climately or whatever you know yeah. uh, it's a real sort of i love that feeling of being transported i'm not someone who ever will rest when i go somewhere i have to go out i have to do stuff really you
0: know? so you would never kind of do a fly and flop No, That's not your thing. No, not at all. No. So, Chapter 5 is your hidden gem. I mean, I imagine through your career you've gone to a lot of remote places, places that the ordinary person wouldn't necessarily know to go to. Is there a place that comes to mind?
1: It's funny, I've just come back from Northern Italy and I thought I'd been everywhere in Italy and um, I was been given a book to do um, and it's a year in the life of a particular area uh-huh. and it's the very northernmost part of Tuscany and it's the Carrera Mountains and it was Carrera Marble oh, right. and it's particularly around a town called Fivizzano. It's quite extraordinary. It's occasionally I've never watched Game of Thrones, but I imagine you could film Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. around these mountains. Yeah, I haven't watched it either, but I know what you mean. The the mountains are marble, so they look like they've snowed on all the time. Fivizzano is this little market town, but it's at the base of the mountains. And the mountains are stunning. I mean, beyond stunning. And I don't understand why I didn't know. I knew about the marble, but I didn't know about the mountains. And you're two hours from the beach, but what you have actually with the beaches there is these sort of rather old-fashioned um beach clubs with sort of 50s architecture and typography and and that I love. Mm-hmm. I love that kind of experience where it's you know it's very retro. It's all very Wes Anderson. Oh, it's yeah. really you know straight stri- out It's parasols. Exactly. That, yeah. And um I went out with the mussel fisherman two or three weeks ago to sh- photograph them bring up the muscles early in the morning for the restaurants. And I had this amazing experience with the the boat captain. I mean boat captain, it was a boat for two and, you know, he's but he he was he started waxing lyrical and he started quoting Wagner. <laughs> and he explained to me that this was the Bay of Poets that we were on, which mm-hmm. I mean, I'm such a romantic. This just you know, if I was a woman I'd be in love with him straight away. You know? <laughs> it's one of those experiences, you know, if you don't travel, you don't experience these things. You know, it's mm. like it's like never opening a book. It's you know, you you go away, you just think I've lived a thousand lives today. Almost, you know, yeah. I, you know, you can quote so much. You, it's everything from the clear water to the to you know eating the raw mussels on the boat to mm. the heat to the Bay of Poets to the it's it's that, everything. That you whole know, mellow. so so this area is extraordinary because it has the beach clubs and it has amazing seafood and it has this amazing poetic side to it but then it has these incredible mountains Um, and the water that runs off the mountains and I've been shooting this book seasonally so over lockdown I've been there four times and each time I've said I want to swim in these cold water pools that come off the off the Marble Mountains. Yeah. And it was only on the last day of the last shoot that I had time. It's the water. I love the idea. You dive into the water and you drink it as you dive. Uh, You know, the water is so So clear clear and and, so beautiful. And it was like a scene from, I don't know, Lord of the Rings. It was like Rivendell. You know, Mm -hmm. it was this clear water. There were dragonflies everywhere. There were fish in the water. There were frogs. There Uh, were, you know, it was just it was so beautiful heavenly. so so that that if I had to name a gem I think and it's undiscovered that's the amazing thing
0: yeah well that's a total hidden hidden gem yeah well, and the food choice.
1: and the food is amazing the restaurants are amazing they're all little local restaurants and there was Italian food there that I've never heard of really yeah
0: so a place for is it would you say Italo files
1: Italophiles, I think so.
0: Maybe a place you know to really like get a new experience. Well, if a
1: Grecophile file can be converted, yeah, then... that's what I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but certainly, I that's that's I I can't wait to go back as a as a you know, I say a tourist, I never call myself a tourist, but you know what I
0: mean. As a a traveller, a traveller, yeah, yes. So, photographing food,
1: yeah.
0: Us travellers, we. We love to photograph our food, and really, you are kind of the pioneer of the what is now known as the flat lay the flat
1: lay yeah yeah, you
0: know, the flat lay so I mean i'm assuming most of my listeners know what that means, but if you don't if you're not a big flat lay photographer, it's the over the top uh food shop where uh, you might see on famous bloggers pages of their brunches generally <laughs> generally um and and david here he he pioneered this kind of this this look with the above by loftus kind of image would you say yeah i mean it was kind.
1: Yeah, i suppose so but i mean i don't i don't like to take credit for anything there's never anything original you know there's no it never an original idea but it's We did it for one of Jamie's books and it was really trying to show multiple things clearly. And of course, the traditional way of shooting food was always the sort of three quarters to side on. Yeah, And most chefs don't plate food like that. So yeah, you'd find, particularly like, in French kitchens, where you're yeah. you, you are actually looking at it. So it made complete sense to yeah. us to yeah. shoot it from above. But I started to do it, and Jamie liked it, so I kept doing it. And then we decided to shoot a whole book from above. And then, of course, I did a River Cafe book, and they said, can you shoot it all from above, fully in focus, and da da So it, it carried on, and mm-hmm. the whole process carried on. Um,
0: and there is, what is it about seeing the food from above that just seems to really resonate with with the people looking at the photos because there's just something about it is it the there
1: is I think you can see everything for one thing I know that sounds a bit obvious but one of my pet hates was seeing food is my pet hate really is seeing food photography where you can't tell what's in the dish yeah and it's really hard to make a dish correctly unless you can see everything and see the ingredients Mm -hmm. and see what makes it taste and good I think we all like naturally You know, there's there's this whole thing about the law of thirds and things like that when Mm -hmm. you take a photo. And it's actually what the brain sees. And of course, when you shoot a plate from above, often you're you're framing it in thirds anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think as far as, you know, in a sort of um, nerdy design perspective, it feels natural and it feels clean and it feels, you know, it feels correct in a design perspective. You know, it often is the thirds. And the funny thing is, if you look back at your photos, your own photos, you'll find often you're framing things in thirds.
0: So shooting on a smartphone, yeah. you're, you know, you're out and about and you do want to share a photo of the meal that you're eating. Like yeah. what's the kind of like one, I'm sure you ask this a lot, but what's the kind of one tip that you'd suggest?
1: Well, if you're in a restaurant, that if you ask, this, is, well, I always do it, I, e- even now, I just say, do you mind if I quickly take this to the window? Or do you mind if I quickly take this outside? I just want to take a photograph. And of course, a restaurant or a chef is normally chuffed, particularly if you tag them on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't know whether you're going to be a really famous photographer or a famous blogger or a writer or whatever. But, yeah. but they're just pleased that you love their food. And no one minds if you take it outside and put it in the shade or in some dappled light or, you know, but my thing is as well, they don't mind if you take it to the doorway or to the window or to somewhere just to have the soft light. And it's not it's not about direct light. So you don't want the sunlight. You want the soft light So take okay. it out of the sunlight. Right. Into the soft light. Yeah. And that's the thing. And then use your phone to expose on the darkest spot.
0: So you tap it on yeah, the darkest spot. Yeah, you tap on spot. the dark
1: spot and then it will just, again, it brightens it up and lightens it up but make sure there's no fake lighting so no tungsten lighting. Mm-hmm. Often I use my body as a shade to so you know you'll, you'll You're call, it, a you you literally make a got, shadow. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean sometimes when I have a little camera bag I just keep a piece of card in my like white card and I can use it as a little reflector or I get a silver card and use that as a reflector. I a used to idea. I used to use the t- tops of the you know the takeaway yeah, yeah, tins you yeah, yeah. used to get silver which had things. a silver yeah. top they make great little reflectors to reflect light huh? and then a napkin can make a great diffuser from sunlight if you shine it through a napkin
0: these are such great tips i can imagine everyone is going to be like <laughs> taking note it's now and saving the tops of their food, takeaways food
1: definitely looks better with soft light yeah. soft natural light it looks a lot better
0: so chapter six is your worst travel experience our penultimate chapter
1: I have to say I've had some shockers I really have and I've had guns pointed at me in Lebanon and Gambia and all sorts I nearly drowned in Gambia um out with fishermen oh my goodness um certainly Australia has created some shockers northwest tip of Australia is like hell on earth and every fly and animal wants to live in your mouth or your ears or somewhere and you can't go in the water because it's too hot and and you can't go in the sun because it's going to fry you. And so there are lots of extreme places, that environment. extreme environments. Um, but the one thing that I suppose the thing I avoid most in life is sort of confrontation and the threat of violence. And, you know, I've seen a lot of it. I've, you know, a lot of the gun pointing is just saber rattling, really. So the threat of violence is the thing that, that really gets me and you know I'm a sensitive soul so I'm not someone who's robust and can cope with it at all and certainly America has created some horrendous moments in my traveling experience um probably the worst is New Orleans New Orleans where I was attacked by a gang while I was taking photos Mm -hmm. um and they smashed my cameras they you know, I was knocked unconscious, and it made me. It made me very aware. It destroyed my mojo as a photographer for a long time. But um, I was told by the police two days later that they thought I was going to be shot. So Jeez, they, said guess, I, like they said I was. Re- they said I was really lucky because the pers- the people who attacked me, were armed. But I didn't love being around people where there's that constant threat, um, and there's a lot of that in New Orleans and it's not just it's not just local people it's people being drunk in the streets it's that thing of I don't like going places where everyone's drunk in the streets no no too old for it yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) so we are on to the final chapter chapter seven is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list
1: I think it has to be Japan Mm -hmm. Japan to me has so much artistically culturally you know um scenically um the food scene i would love to experience japanese food i'm very highly allergic to chilies i read so, this that so, is so tre- treacherous so you know for you. Places like south america i've spent a little time there and india um vietnam it is like russian roulette for me but oh, but gosh. i do do it and you know I, and
0: it's serious isn't it you it is serious
1: yeah um so and i've managed to avoid it all this time so yeah someone like so I I at home, I eat a lot of Japanese food. So I'd love to eat Japanese food. I'll probably never eat it again in the UK once I've been to Japan. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to go, you know, during one of the times where the blossom is at its best or or the autumn leaves at their best. I'd love to stay in sort of, you know, the old temples, I'd love to learn to do a martial art. I'd love to. (laughs) I'm doing this thing at the moment where I am practicing geotaku. This was a lockdown hobby where you take, uh, so Japanese fishermen would catch a fish uh, many, you know, centuries ago. And they'd want to, it was a particularly big fish, for example, so they'd record the size of it. So -hmm. they'd mash up some charcoal in some water, paint the fish with charcoal, get some rice paper and take a print of the fish. So I'm doing that now. So I've got my Japanese brushes, which are behind me here. I paint the fish. I take prints of it. I want to go and do that, but I want to do it in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to have tea in these wonderful places. I want to...
0: You need to get there, David. I, know, I mean, it I feels know. like the place that you you need to be.
1: Japan. So, yeah, of all, of all the places, I think Japan is the one I'd love to be. Mm-hmm. And I'd read Japanese literature and poetry and
0: also like the kind of serenity of it i from hearing yeah. your travel diaries it sounds like a place that would suit you
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah oh <laughs> wonderful thank you so much what an amazing oh, been a opportunity pleasure. to chat to you thank you so much uh david loftus those were your travel diaries thank you Oh, a huge big thank you to David. It was such a treat to speak to him. I've been a huge fan of his work for so long. David's memoir, Diary of a Lone Twin, is out now. And thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. It's really easy to do that. On Apple, they've just changed it so that you follow rather than subscribe by pressing the plus sign in the top right-hand corner of the app. I would also be so grateful if you could leave a rating or a review it really helps other people to discover the podcast to find out who's joining me next week follow me on instagram at holly rubenstein I'd love to hear from you and if you can't wait until then there's all of seasons one two three and four to catch up on thanks again take care and I'll be back with you next week Airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus...